0: All right. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Look at that. Welcome. Welcome to our gathering for April. We're going to get started. And of course, we're going to start as we end with gratitude. First, for our friends here at the Windy Saddle who take such amazing care of us and always do us right. Thank you so much, you guys. Also for goldentoday.com, those guys do amazing work around our whole community. Barborden is here tonight. And also um, amazing support for this event in particular. So if you're wondering what's going on in Golden, whether it has to do with our local businesses or it has to do with local happenings, I recommend checking out goldentoday.com. They have a couple different email newsletters that you can have sent to you every single day. You can wake up to them in the morning and feel apprised of the news and information. Thank you, Barb. Also, to Greg Reed, often when I thank him, he's not in the room, but tonight he is in the room. Our local musician who lets us use this sound system, which is an amazing gift and makes everyone's life a lot better. Thank you, Greg. Tonight, our beer ambassador is also going to be kind of running the show. This is kind of Frank's night. He's put everything in motion, and he's going to carry it through for us. If you have any questions or awkward moments, I would say just ask Frank what to do about it. He's going to come up here and talk about the beer and also introduce our speaker. Here's our beer ambassador, Frank Baja.
1: Thank you, Whitney, and uh, thank you all for coming to Golden Beer Talks again. And Tonight we have Golden City Brewery beer uh, here for us. We have Clear Creek Gold, which is a nice Kolsch-type ale, and Firefly New England IPA, a New England um, IPA being very juicy, kind of going for the floral notes with the hops, almost more like a dry-hopped beer, not going for hop bitterness, but for a nice floral, juicy, smooth feel. And although it's got, I think it was 55 uh, international bitterness units, it's really a very smooth beer. It doesn't seem that bitter with the interplay of flavors. And then the Clear Creek Gold is a nice, clean, crisp, Kolsch-style beer. So these were made in cologne, and the cologne brewers got together and they defined what these Kolsch-style beers would be, and it was a lengthy list. And I guess what I'll say is they all had to agree not to say premium or exclusive or anything like that. And the Kolsch's are very nice summer beers so great beer for today because it was supposed to be like 80 degrees i had in my truck 82 degrees coming home from work maybe not so good for tomorrow if we really get another blizzard but anyway <laughs> hopefully not um so golden city brewery i'm just going to say uh it's it's a very excellent brewery it's a friendly place with a friendly feel and many good beers uh I'd say these days, last maybe six or 12 months, they're doing more small batches. So they probably had 11 different beers on tap today, or maybe 12. I should have counted them up. I did not specifically count them. But they had a lot of different brews on tap, including a 15% ABV barley wine ale. And they did have a sour on tap as well. Um, So anyway, uh, very popular place. I like it a lot. And uh, it was a great place when I went and heard President Obama speak when he was running for re-election and he was over here at Lyons Park. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to park any closer. So I walked from my home to the the, uh, meeting, almost got to shake his hand. Then I was on my way home and I thought, hey, if I wait about 10 minutes, uh, they're going to open up and I could have a beer on my way home. And so I did, and then I wound up talking with a Ph.D. geologist there for about two hours. So it was a wonderful day. This week, down in, Go- uh, in Denver, I'm sorry, is the Craft Brewers comp- Conference. So this is ongoing at the Convention Center. It's actually quite a large uh, conference. Uh, it started today. It op- the doors open at 9, 9 to 3, I believe, each day. Tomorrow in the afternoon, I'm going to be part of a meeting of the Pure Water Brewing Alliance. So this is a recycled water program. So direct reuse of wastewater. So it's direct potable reuse. And they did a program like this in Arizona in 2017 and 2018. And they have a portable trailer with pretty much every unit operation to treat uh, water. And they went to three different wastewater treatment plants, one in Flagstaff, one in Phoenix, and one in Tucson. They produced a lot of recycled water, or pure water is what they were calling it. And then they had uh, these big batches of very clean water, and they had over 30 breweries engage with them and made special beers uh, out of that recycled water, that pure water. And then they had a taste contest at another water conference later in the year, so uh, September or October. And as you know, I normally wear the shirts and, I, and bring the stuff from the breweries that we are um, featuring. So I do have the Golden City Brewery t-shirt, but I'm sure you're all wondering, well, why is he wearing a Dragoon Brewing Hat, or as the local pronunciation was, Dragoon Brewing. And this is from Tucson, Arizona, if you see. And that's because Dragoon Brewing won that contest. So they had the best beer made from the pure water, from the recycled water, as a way to demonstrate the technologies to create potable water from wastewater. And so we're talking about possibly doing that here in Colorado or something like that as well. So this is sort of a, um, an initial meeting tomorrow, and uh, I hope that we do this, and I hope that we can get some of the local breweries like Golden City, Holiday, Daily, et cetera, involved. So um, Craft Brewing con- uh, Conference, and they've got a huge exhibit hall, and if you're wondering about the Pure Water uh, Brewers Alliance, <laughs> that is going to be at, uh, hold on one moment, Booth 3122 for the next three days, well, for the next two days. They were there today, and I'll be down there for part of the day tomorrow. So anyway, a little beer factoid, right, as as had been promised for Golden Beer Talks. So uh, as introduction to this talk, uh, I'm going to touch on climate change and extreme events, extreme weather events, because I'd consider wildfires an extreme weather event. And NOAA, on most of the tables, there's a little handout from NOAA on uh, extreme weather events. And there was a very extensive report that was published right after uh, Thanksgiving last year in November 2018, the fourth National Climate Assessment, volume two. It has a lot of information on different climate change issues and impacts, including one, chap- one complete chapter on water. I believe that's chapter three. And it also has some regional discussion of impacts of climate change on water. And I believe it also has a chapter on forests. Can you verify that or... Can you confirm or deny? I think it has a chapter on force. I was going to relook at it today, but I ran out of time. you
0: spend two hours talking to someone about fear? what happened. Like, no, no. no,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Th- this, this one's more recent. But um, let, let's just say that the 4th uh, NCA talks about, and a lot of the different models for climate change talk about, We're going to have more extreme weather events, and they're going to be more extreme. So more extreme events that are also more extreme in and of themselves, each and every one. And so uh, this handout will, uh, if you look at it, it has statistics from, um, what is it, 1980 through 2018. It's an average of $6.21 billion or greater weather-related disasters. So 6.2 average over those, like, 30-ish years. But if you look at the last five years, so 2014 through 2018 inclusive, that's actually five years. So it's 2014 and 2018. The average is 12.6 one billion uh, weather disasters uh, for those five years. So the models say we're going to have more extreme events, and the data seem to indicate we're going to have more extreme events. And there are also uh, statistics on more and more acres burning pretty much year by year in the western United States, uh, partly driven by climate change. You know, it's changing the weather patterns, uh, warmer temperatures, et cetera. So uh, there are a lot of impacts, and that's what Christina Burry is going to talk about as a member of Denver Water. And she is a water scientist, watershed scientist at Denver Water, and she works to inventory, protect, and improve the 2.5 million acres of watershed area in Denver Water's collection system. She also leads Denver Water's innovative watershed management and planning efforts, including forest health investments. As part of this effort, Christina manages the From Forests to Faucets Partnership, a $66 million agreement between Denver Water, the U.S. Forest Service, Colorado State Forest Service, and the Natural Resources Conservation Service. That's the old Soil Conservation Service, to improve the health of Colorado's forests and watersheds. Christina serves as the board chair for the Coalition of the Upper South Platte. She is also involved in several watershed and forest health collaborative groups, such as the Upper South Platte Partnership, Wildfire Watershed Protection Group, Front Range Roundtable, High Country Forest Collaborative, and the South Platte River Urban Waters Partnership. Prior to Denver Water, she worked as a natural resource specialist for the Bureau of Reclamation, She holds a degree in environmental sciences with an emphasis on water quality and public health. In her spare time, she enjoys spending weekends at her cabin and hiking in the Roosevelt National Forest. So Christina Burry from Denver Water to speak on All Hands, All Lands, Proactive Investments in Forests and Watersheds because Denver has been living the dream since the Buffalo Creek fire, Uh, Forest fires.
2: Oh, thank you. Sure. So, my name is Christina. I'm here to share about Denver Water's proactive investments in our watersheds. Um, So what I mean by the term watershed is just the connection between land and water. And Denver Water has approximately 2.5 million acres in what we consider our collection system watershed. Um, So the watershed scientist position was new for Denver Water. Um, I've been at Denver Water for about three years. And it was a brand new position um, to be an architect of a new watershed planning program for Denver Water. Um, It was a really exciting opportunity. Uh, In my previous experience, I worked for the EPA. I worked for um, a utility power siting board assessing environmental impacts from proposed utilities. So I always spent my career... Fighting utilities seeing the damage that, um, that they 've done with some of their proposed projects, so I never saw myself working for utility, and uh, this was just really an exciting moment to be able to shape a brand new watershed program and start to make a difference in our environment and um, take a, a stewardship type perspective. Um, at a utility. So it is really an exciting time. And I want to recognize um, Allison Witheridge, who's a watershed scientist I was able to hire a year ago. So my empire of watershed planning is expanding at Denver Water, and also Madeline McDonald, who um, we just recently hired as an intern um, to help with some of the planning opportunities. So I am excited for the future of Denver Water and making um, proactive investments. And I call it all hands, all lands because. Uh, in our watershed, the 2.5 million acres, Denver Water owns only 3% of our watershed. Um, about 54% is national forests, and um, about 34% is privately owned forested land. So, uh, we really have to work with across the boundary, all hands, all lands perspectives, and be a good partner and a good steward to the communities in our watershed. Do you want me to just like do this?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: That'll <be good>. Okay. <laughs> this is really nice to be able to speak with a beer. I've never been able to do that. Yay. Um, so just a little bit about Denver Water. Um, we are Colorado's oldest and largest water utility. We serve about 1.4 million people. And uh, one thing I always like to highlight um, in the beginning is Denver Water is able to make a lot of these um, investments, such as our From Forest to Faucets partnership, which I'll share about tonight, uh, because we have an independent board of of, um, commissioners. And so why I bring that up is uh, Denver Water is in a better position to be able to make um, decisions on these proactive investments in watersheds where like Colorado Springs Utilities, Aurora Water, they have to compete um, for budget with all the other utilities that the city council has to plan for. So really having the independent board um, is is very important for being able to make these large-scale decisions and investments in our watershed. <laughs> we can skip the video. Um, so... Th- thinking about, again, that utility perspective, this was a huge moment for me when Denver Water um, in their in their revamped strategic plan in 2017 um, actually called out to sustain healthy watersheds as part of their excellent operations. This is huge. This is a big step for Denver Water um, to actually say, we are considering our watersheds as part of our operations. Um, so this was a big step, and it really provided a lot of support for me to ask for allison's position to ask for help um, to get budgets approved i can always link back to the strategic plan says sustaining healthy watersheds is a priority for denver water and this has been a great tool so um, just for thinking about communicating um, our vision for the future i really this is a proud moment for me to have um, sustaining healthy watersheds as part of our strategic plan So, the From Forest to Faucets Partnership, um, Denver Water, we came a long way to um, taking the the more proactive perspective. Um, Denver Water was the poster child for uh, the impacts. Um, and being, or the, the cost of being reactive and experiencing the impacts and being reactive versus proactive, um, especially after the Buffalo Creek and the Hayman Fire. So we learned the hard way um, that not caring for our watersheds and our forests is really more costly. Um, so the From Forest to Faucets partnership began in 2010 uh, between Denver Water and the U.S. Forest Service, each investing $16.5 million dollars uh, for a total investment of $33 million for work in Denver Water's priority watersheds and um, and focusing on forest restoration, so that's reducing the hazardous fuels in our forests but also restoring uh, the forests that have burned in the Hayman Fire and um, Buffalo Creek. So Buffalo Creek Fire was in 1996, and the Hayman Fire was in 2002. Um, and the the costs, I'll, I'll share some um photos and some information on the costs of those fires and what motivated Denver Water to invest in this partnership. Oh, and one thing to mention, too, um, Denver Water owns about 60,000 acres um, in the state of Colorado, and the Colorado State Forest Service has been our forester for over 30 years. I see Max just walked in. Uh, there we go. Hello. Yeah. Yay. Yes. We love the State Forest Service. Um, they, yeah, they've been our forester for over 30 years, and they manage our lands. Um, so Denver Water did make proactive investments before from forest to faucets, at least for Denver Waterlands. So talking about the fires in our watershed, um, this is a map of our watershed. Allison has maps of our collection system. Um, our watersheds. If you're interested afterwards, you can grab a handout. Um, But you can see the different colors. I apologize if you're colorblind. I try to be sensitive to that, but this map um, is in color. So... um. You can see the red. The red is the Heyman fire, and then the purple are some of the small fires that we've experienced in our watersheds. We're in a fire-adapted ecosystem, and our most impacted watershed was the Upper South Platte. And so we know that... Um, a- approximately 80% of our water moves through the Upper South Platte through Strontia Springs Reservoir, and that watershed is most impacted by wildfires, and it's it's very vulnerable. Um, it's a front range ponderosa pine mixed conifer forest, and so it's it's A fire adapted ecosystem we're going to have fires that occur in that watershed Um, so it's a way to think about being proactive in investing in the health of our forests because we know from history the impacts that we've seen in this really uh, vulnerable and critical uh, watershed for Denver Water's water supply So thinking about what were some of the impacts that Denver Water experienced, a lot of it was post-fire. It was um, in thinking about, okay, we're in a fire-adapted ecosystem, we know there's going to be fires. I'm glad Frank brought up the challenges that we're going to experience with climate change in the future. Um, it's really these high-intensity fires like the Hayman Fire, like the Buffalo Creek Fire, that cause um, this change in the soil and um, sterilization of the soil. It eliminates the seed bank, um, and so really you see a lot of post-fire sedimentation, and this is what was so costly to Denver water. So this is a photo of one of the streams, um, upstreams of Strancha Springs Reservoir, that you can see the sedimentation that occurred after the Buffalo Creek Fire. And the Buffalo Creek Fire was in 1996. It was close to Strancha Springs Reservoir, um, and it was approximately 11,000 acres that burned in that fire, and the Hayman Fire was approximately 138,000 acres. It was Colorado's largest wildfire. Uh, so, also, some of the cost was just the the debris. Um, everything drains to to the bottom, the reservoir, um, so it all ends up in Straucha springs and the debris was a huge challenge as well, not just the sediment but but the actual debris and um, Some of the uh, the fire um, plans that came out after after Buffalo Creek um, showed that the debris traveled eleven miles downstream, so it travels really far. Um, and we experienced a lot of those impacts from the debris and still do. This is a photo of Strontia Springs Reservoir with all the debris, as you can see, um, it was a challenge for Denver Water, um, in... 2011 to 2013, Denver Water invested in a dredging operation. Um, after the Buffalo Creek and the Hayman fires, there was approximately 1 million cubic yards of sediment that drained into Strontia Springs along with all of the debris and ash. And um, so Denver Water engineers um, embarked on uh, hiring a contractor to do the dredging And the dredging was supposed to remove approximately 700,000 cubic yards of that one million. Uh, The dredging operation was a failure, unfortunately. Um, They only removed approximately a third of the sediment and debris that they had wanted to, um, and it was a cost of $18.5 million. And so, um, we actually have guys that go out on the reservoir and do bathymetric surveys, and they analyze the sediment. And um, they found that all the sediment that, that was removed in the dredging operation in 2011 to 2013 is now back in, and um, and even more. And so we saw from the intensity of the Hayman fire, it's still like a moonscape out there. Um, so we know that erosion is, is going to continue to be a problem. Um, so really, it's, it's trying to think about these proactive investments. But it was the costs the Denver Water Experience that motivated these decisions in making proactive investments in our watershed. So talking about the erosion, um, Strontia Springs, it's a naturally erosive watershed. Um, it's uh, granitic soils, and the engineers that designed Strontia Springs, um, they did account for natural erosion, for background erosion, and so you can see um, that's the, the red line. And the, the blue line is what happened after the um, post-fire debris and sedimentation after um, the Hayman and Buffalo Creek fires. So you can see the, the rate of erosion really was accelerated, and Strontia Springs was not designed um, to, to maintain this level of erosion. Water quality impacts. Um, that was also a challenge for Denver Water. Um, I was at a com- Allison and I were at a conference last week, Um, for After the Flames, um, was the name of the conference, and Undersecretary for Natural Resources and the Environment, Jim Hubbard, spoke about his recollection of Denver water serving um, smoky tasting and turbid water after the Buffalo Creek fire, and I actually had to fact check that. I was like, man, did did Denver water really serve, like turbid water? I didn't, I've never heard that, Um, and We did. Um, it turns out that I guess some of the water quality impacts came in um, before some of our treatment plant folks could catch them. They were all at the safe drinking water level, but still it was um, a taste and odor issue that Denver Water experienced. So we did experience um, water quality impacts. Uh, luckily, Denver Water has a lot of flexibility in our system. That being said, smaller utilities, this is a problem. And um, the High Park fire that happened in Fort Collins, um, they had some flexibility in their system as well. But um, for smaller water utilities, this is a real, a real problem. And so um, being able to um, consider treatment impacts is also part of the decision in protecting our watersheds. Yeah. What's turbid? Turbid. I'm sorry. Um, turbid is just like when you think about all the sediment coming in the water, it's just like muddy, muddy water. Like, would as this would yeah this is like turbid really turbid yeah and if you guys have questions please feel free to just ask away oh we do okay all right um so yeah some of the impacts were um, metals total organic carbon these are all things that the treatment plants have to invest in in removing so Um, Denver Water, uh, so with the dredging operation, that was $18.5 million. um, They estimated they spent approximately $28 million in the cost of reacting after Buffalo Creek and the Hayman fires. Um, That doesn't count the cost of suppression and the cost of staff time. That's just dealing with the infrastructure impacts and the water quality impacts um, after those fires. So why did we see all this erosion, all this, um, all these impacts after these fires? It gets to because of the intensity of the fires. So again, we're, we're in Colorado. We're in a fire-adapted ecosystem. We're supposed to have fires. On the front-range forest, the Ponderosa Pine, mixed conifer, Golden, Golden's Front Range, mixed conifer-type forest... Um, you know it depends on who you ask but we're supposed to have a low intensity regularly occurring fire maybe every 20 to 30 years give or take um, on the high elevation forests where there's Lodgepole Pine, this is more like Summit County around Dillon Reservoir, um, it's, the fire return interval is greater there, like maybe every 50 to 100 years. So on the Front Range, where our, our most important reservoir is, we're supposed to have naturally occurring fires. Um, so Denver Water is not trying to put out every single fire Um, That's supposed to happen naturally on our landscape and that's kind of what got us in the problem that we're in today is we have these really large scale intense fires because we have an overgrowth in our forests, and it's fuel. It's basically just a lot of fuel that provides, um, that, that really high intensity condition that leaves such a scar on the landscape and impacts our watersheds. So Denver water is trying to make investments in our forests to get them back to how they were historically, um, about a hundred years ago before we were suppressing fires. I understand why we need to suppress them. We have population moving into, um, the the wildland urban interface. And so I understand for community safety, um, but because of us suppressing the fires that would naturally occur at a low intensity that was healthy for the landscape, um, we've gotten overgrowth in our forests, and that creates a lot of fuels and creates high intensity fires. Um, so this photo is just supposed to showcase the difference between Um, what it was about 100 years ago versus right before the Hayman fire. This is out at Cheeseman Reservoir so just upstream of Strontia Springs Um, again ponderosa pine type forest on the front range and you can see in in the earlier photo in the 1900s you can see openings, you can see meadows and that's what we're trying to achieve is getting the forest back to where there's these openings, there's species diversity, there's different age classes of trees, different species and that makes it a healthier, more resilient forest especially when thinking about insect and disease. Um, Right now we just have a monoculture of trees and so when you have different ages, different heights, different species, that creates a condition for the forest to be more healthy and more resilient. So what we're doing is preparing the landscape to receive fire at a lower intensity as it historically would have in the past so you can see really the you know the most recent picture before the hayman fire i mean the monoculture of pine that you just see um it's it again is just more fuel when a fire moves through and then one more So this photo shows um, one of the successful moments for Denver Water that they experienced after the Heyman fire. Um, It wasn't all bad in lessons learned. Denver Water did experience um, the success of of forest treatments, of putting in fuel breaks. So this is around Cheeseman Reservoir. The State Forest Service, as I said, has been our forester for over 30 years. And so they put in some fuel breaks and some treatments around Cheeseman Reservoir. Um, out at Cheeseman, we have some guys that live on site, and they're, they're our caretakers. So people's homes are out there. And um, the treatments and the fuel breaks that the State Forest Service did at Cheeseman Reservoir saved our caretakers' homes and saved our facilities. Um, So Denver Water saw firsthand the benefits of investing in our forests um, during the Hayman fire. And to add to that, um, the State Forest Service and other partners, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, did a prescribed burn called Polhemus, and that was just before the Hayman fire. Um, And because of that prescribed burn, uh, the Hayman fire dropped to the ground, and it prevented the spread to southwest Denver. So because of that prescribed burn and the right conditions to suppress um, the fire, that really prevented Hayman fire from crossing over into southwest Denver. So I have some before and after photos of forest of faucets. Um, to talk a little bit about, uh, this is more on the, um, the high country. So this is Summit County. Um, this was on the White River National Forest. Denver Water, we have the three different national forests in our watersheds, that's the White River, National Forest, Arapaho-Roosevelt, and the Pike-San Isabel. Um, So over on the White River, that's more lodgepole pine. um, Beetle impacted. As you drive over there, I'm sure you can see a lot of the beetle kill. Um, So the mountain pine beetle had um, its scar in the forest. I think the State Forest Service came out with a report that every one in five trees standing is dead. Um, But the the mountain pine beetle is on the decline. I heard the um, State Forest Service entomology just gave an update that the mountain pine beetles on the decline, but now the new threat is the spruce beetle um, so <laughs> yeah just just more to think about and plan and prepare for. Um, But with the mountain pine beetle impacted trees, it's very evident. I think aesthetically it looks very, um, you you can just tell when the the trees have been impacted by the mountain pine beetle. Um, What they're saying with the spruce beetle is that they don't turn kind of that reddish color that's really indicative of them just looking dead. Um, it's, It's less apparent, and so they're concerned that people won't be, I guess, quite as as worried um, about the spruce beetle as they should be, just because aesthetically it's not as obvious as the pine beetle. Um, so you can see in this, in this photo, this was a before photo. This was done through Forest of Faucets, so our partnership with the U.S. Forest Service on the White River National Forest. You can see a lot of the standing dead. This is in our Dillon Reservoir Priority Watershed. So that's before. And this is after. So you can see a huge difference. If you can't, I'm sorry for the back, Um, I can send them to you, email. Um, So you can see uh, just... The healthier conditions. Um, not only does it create a healthier forest, suppression is a big, a big point too, a big advantage for these treatments. So again, that's creating more openings, more species diversity. Aspen recruitment is big here. You want to try to recruit aspen um, with the openings and opening in the canopy. Uh, but it also creates um, openings for uh, response efforts to drop suppressants. Um, so that's a that's a big. Um, wildfire response tactic as well as as restoring the health of the forest and then just one more before and after so you can see Dillon Reservoir in the background and then the after yeah it's pretty impressive Okay, so thinking about um, it looks better Yeah. (laughs) yeah it does uh, so the most recent success that that we've seen was this past summer with the Buffalo Mountain Fire. Um, the estimated savings of a fuel break that cost one million dollars. It was put in through our partners, the State Forest Service, Summit County. It's, this happened in Summit County in last June. Um, Denver Water, U.S. Forest Service. They put in a fuel break, uh, cost approximately one million dollars, and the fire happened in last June. And um, because of the fuel break that they put in. Uh, response efforts. They were able to drop suppressants and and stop the fire from, I mean, homes that were literally within just like 10 10 to 20 feet of this fuel. I mean, it was close. Um, So This fuel break was estimated to save $1 billion in homes and infrastructure. Um, It's hard to quantify the benefit of of these forest health investments. It's really tough to sell that to people. And I think that Denver Water, because we've experienced the, the cost and the success Um, It's numbers like these that are really important to showcase to our leaders, our decision makers, um, lawmakers, that these are the type of numbers that show how important it is to be proactive in our investments and protecting our forests and also protecting our communities. This is just another photo of um, the Buffalo Mountain Fire. Um, You can see the fuel breaks. Um, And you can see the red, which is just the suppressant that they're dropping, um, in the fuel breaks. So because we have so much land, 2.5 million acres in our watershed, we have to be more strategic in prioritizing where the biggest bang for the buck is. The daunting task of thinking about plant, you know treating every acre in two point five million acres that 's impossible. we just don't have that kind of money and also there's really there's challenges to getting this work done um, we 've gotten a lot of the low hanging fruit so that 's easy access acres there's there's a good access road it 's not steep um, right now we 're getting in the acres that are a lot more challenging, a lot more costly. And um, the timber industry is something that's a limitation for our state. So um, at the federal level, what I'm hearing is that uh, it's, uh, Colorado's at a disadvantage because um, we, don't have a good com- we don't have good commercial timber. Um, we have a lot of scrap trees. And when we do these treatments, getting rid of the what they call the woody biomass is the major cost. Um, Usually treatments, uh, they average about um, in the beginning days. It was like in 2010, it was around $500 an acre. Um, Now that we're getting into steeper acres, more challenging acres, it could go above $3,000 an acre. So um, a lot of that is just dealing with what do they do with the the trees that they're removing. Um, There's been some innovative uses for it. Um, I think I have a slide later on to show you um, some innovative ways to use the chips. Um, but really, the, the lack of timber industry in the state sets us back a little bit, um, and it, it drives the cost up for these projects. So the cost is a factor in why we need to be strategic in identifying the locations where it's really important for our drinking water related to proximity to infrastructure, to reservoirs, um, but also considering uh, the factors like the, the um, slope and the wildfire risk. Is it really high? Is it moderate? Um, So thinking about all these different factors goes into where we are prioritizing this work. Um, What we identify, our priority watersheds, are called zones of concern. So a lot of water utilities on the Front Range, Colorado Springs Utilities, Aurora Water, um, we all uh, invested in in about 2010 in these studies to um, assign zones of concern so we can be strategic and prioritize where we can get work done. On the private land side, um, we're doing work with the State Forest Service and the Natural Resources Conservation Service in priority watersheds and zones of concern. Um, so, a couple examples of that is the Upper South Platte Partnership of which, which Max is a part of and has done a lot of good work. So, thank you, Max. Um, so the Upper South Platte Partnership is focused around Strontia Springs Reservoir. Um, it's to be more strategic and, again, prioritize certain uh, geographic areas of interest for Denver Water and other other partners as well. So the State Forest Service and NRCS joined the From Forest to Faucets Partnership in 2017 so the Firm Forest to Faucets partnership started in 2010 between Denver Water and U.S. Forest Service, each investing the $16.5 million, as I shared in the beginning. And in 2017, we expanded that to get the all-hands-all-lands approach and incorporating the private lands in our priority watersheds to supplement the work that was being done on the national forests in our priority watersheds, again, to achieve that cross-boundary work that we really need to change the landscape and change the risk trajectory that we're seeing, um, especially in the light of climate change. So you can see in this photo, um, this is a photo from the Upper South Platte Partnership. This is a before photo. You can see the overgrowth. Uh, we have the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute that does a lot of the monitoring, and um, they they take scientific information and measurements before and after the treatments on the private land side, and um, they're just a wealth of knowledge. So I do want to acknowledge um, Colorado Forest Restoration Institute that's uh... alongside of the warner college of natural resources out of colorado state university this is the after photo again this is a ponderosa pine forest you can see the openings um, a lot of landowners are hesitant to do treatments on their land and so it really takes um, the efforts of the state forest service and nrcs to go out work with the private landowners and figure out some um, financing options for them. Uh, They have Denver water money that's available that's really exciting. Um, So with this recent expansion of of forest to faucets including private lands, Denver water invested another $16.5 million and that's matched by our partners. So from 2010 to 2022 we have about $66 million invested in um, the health of our forests and the health of our watersheds and some of that money is available for private lands treatments Um, the state forest service right now is is i've been so impressed they're working on a framework to try to figure out where the best acres are and where they have the social license to work um, to achieve some of these treatments on the ground we also have invested in stream restorations Um, so i'm on the board for the coalition for upper south Platte, and so is pat hi pat Anyway, yeah, we're on the board. Um, so, oh, hi. Upper South, Water Upper South Plow Water Conservancy. What's your name? John Rice. Nice to meet you. I have. Well, that's good. Yeah, Jane. Yeah, we'll catch up. Cool. Um, so. We invested along with Aurora Water um, and the Coalition for Upper South Platte in the Horse Creek Stream Restoration. This is an example of what they call an alluvial fan. And it's basically just a gully that forms after, after these really high-intensity fires where there's no vegetation to hold in the, the sediment. Um, and so they erode, they wash away, streams are very dynamic. And so you get these, um, basically these gullies, and they just contribute tons and tons of sediment into our streams... And that all ends up in Strontia Springs. So this one is is right up, upstream of Strontia Springs. In the restoration, um, I don't have any after photos. The project's still in progress. Denver Water gave about $200,000 matched with the city of Aurora giving 200000 And I believe the project's just over a million dollars. And Um, So the Coalition for Upper South Platte has just been a great partner in identifying where these key locations are for thinking about how we can start restoring our streams post-fire, again, getting to preventing the sediment impacts, preventing the sediment upstream of Strontia Springs. And this is um, an example of just the, the this is turbid water. So water quality impacts, not just, not just the actual physical properties of the sediment um, in our infrastructure and reservoirs, but again, water quality impacts that we experience um, with these really erosive um, stream banks. And uh, with the Coalition for Upper South Platte, um, also in partnership with Jefferson County, Park County, Um, Douglas County and Teller County. Uh, We have the Source Water Protection Plan that Coalition for Upper South Platte and Denver Water um, worked on and this is a way to start identifying what other risks and vulnerabilities we have in our watershed and so this plan is available online. Um, I'm happy to share that with anyone that's interested. Uh, really, uh, this is where I'd like to take the watershed planning effort to the next level, is we have great relationships with the U.S. Forest Service and the State Forest Service on the forest health. Um, I think where we need to go is developing these stronger relationships with the counties. Um, What I have heard um, recently is that you know, with the, with the wildfire response efforts, the, the county em- emergency management crew or the, the firefighter crews come in, they handle the suppression efforts, and then they leave. And, of course, they're tired. They want to go home. Um, but it's that recovery piece that's a huge gap and that's a gap for counties that's a gap for watershed planners um so this is something that i think the source water protection plan can open the door that we have um currently with these counties uh, to start talking about how we can be more prepared and planning for the recovery efforts after fires and so that's it Um, i said i would share a little bit about the biomass um, issue and some of the innovations. So this photo is uh, an example of this is on the White River where they've used um, the chips um, from the treatments, and they take it to a, a energy production facility in gypsum. It's so really far, um, but it's the only one that that has this type of equipment um, that the White River can contract with. So um, there's a semi-truck that that shows up and hauls the chips to gypsum um, for energy production, and that's been an innovative way to use some of the woody biomass. But um, really, whenever I do talks or presentations to schools or any bright minds, um, I think this is the key to... um, thinking about driving the cost down for these treatments and investing in our forests, is finding an innovative use for this timber. There's been talk of biochar, um, which is some type of process that changes, uh, like burns the wood product and creates a char, and you can use it in compost. And so there's been some talk of that. Um, There's some companies out there that do that. Um, Right now, what we're doing is they're either hauling it out Um, There's some sawmills, but not a lot, and they don't have the capacity to take all the the timber that is being produced from these treatments. Um, There's uh, also some examples of A1 organics that have taken some of the scrap wood to use in their um, compost and mulch. So that's that's been really cool to see but again we don't really have a strong timber industry and so that's limiting for our state and on the federal level that's how they are tracking accomplishments is by meeting timber targets. And in talking with Jim Hubbard, he said that Secretary Purdue, the Secretary of Agriculture, that's what he's focused on is these timber targets numbers. So commercial timber states like, like Washington and Oregon, they have a huge advantage over Colorado because they can meet these timber targets. So we have to think of ways in being creative about telling the stories of return on investment. And I think Denver Water has the numbers to showcase um, what the costs are in being reactive and And also the success, like the $1 billion saved. It's sharing these stories and these numbers that. that Is compelling to these um, decision makers and the lawmakers that they need to hear these these different types of metrics for why this work is important. Even though timber targets aren't something that um, Colorado that we just can't meet. So um, thank you so much, and um, I just encourage you all to to think about innovative ways to deal with this biomass issue in the in the timber industry. Um, And I'll welcome any questions. So thank you.
0: So because this is Golden Beer Talks and we have some more beer in the house, we're going to take a quick break. If you need another beer or you need a snack or anything like that, we'll come back for Q&A here in a few minutes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We are back. We're going to do a little Q&A. Christina, you can choose. If you don't mind kind of repeating the question a little bit so it shows up on our podcast, that would be cool. Next month, we have a guest brewery. I wish I could remember what it is, but that'll just keep you coming back for more. And Ocean First Institute is coming to talk about ocean health next month. Yeah. All right. So here's Christina. Get your hands up in the air. I don't want to be that. taller. Oh, thanks. Right. Yeah. So the pine bark beetle yep. is in decline. Yep. I've always heard it had to have a
1: lot of really cold temperatures to infect in have occurred, so what would be the
2: reason to decline? Maybe yeah. the tree species is more resistant? Um, really, they... Uh, <laughs> it, so you're right in that the cold temperatures, um, why there is this peak was the cold temperatures, but also um, water as well. So when there is a drought, um, water and temperature have a lot to do with the insect and disease issues. Um, why it's on the decline is it sounds like um, just the natural life cycle of the beetle, um, that there's just a natural, like, rise and fall. Um, but there's no specific reason why it's a decline. I think it's just they, they peaked, and now they're, they're declining. Um, but with that decline, like I said, there's going to be another peak. With the spruce beetle is what they're predicting. Right now, it's in Rocky Mountain National Forest, kind of northern, and then also in the Durango area. And it's kind of creeping its way in towards the the middle, so they're keeping an eye on that. But um, to put in a plug for what the State Forest Service is doing, they do flyovers once a year. They do their entomologist gets in a helicopter, or maybe it's a plane. I don't know. It's up in the air, and they um, they take they create GPS shapefiles in the plane. Um, where they see these pockets of insect and disease, where they're, they're tracking that. And you can go on their website and actually see the shape files and the patterns of where um, the insect and disease uh, outbreaks are in the state. Um, and they just issued their 2018 Forest Health Report that uh, has a whole section on insect and disease and kind of the dynamics of that so if you want any more information that's, that's the best resource but I think that just the decline of the it's just the natural ecology there's the peak and then the fall I think there was a peak in the
0: 30s too
2: wasn't there, that I don't know that you're, you're probably uh, the, the comment was was there a peak in the 30s and that you're probably correct in that I just don't know Uh, as far as i know it 's just the spruce. There are some uh, one thing I learned from the entomologist 's talk was that these aren 't um, invasive these are na- these are native pests that just or native bugs insects that um, that just because of lack of water. Uh, lack of diversity in the forest and um, climate change, the warming temperatures, just create conditions where they just—it's their populations just increase beyond what the forest can handle. Um, so they're not—they're not invasive. They're native insects, and um, so there are some there are some insects that that do impact uh, the fur. Doug, like I think that there's the moth. Um, I can't think of the name right now, but there's a moth. I know that is impacting some of the fir trees. Um, yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question was, um, does the water for Denver Water come from watersheds, or is there some groundwater sources? Currently, right now, it is all from watersheds, from surface water. That being said, we have some, um, there's some exploration for, um, uh, like, a groundwater source through aquifer storage. Um, it's nothing that we've done as of, as of yet, But it is being explored. Um, We have a planning effort that's called our our Integrated Resources Plan, and it plans for water resources through 50 years, so long-range planning. And our most recent um, Integrated Resources Plan plans for water resources through 2065. And the aquifer storage Is an option in there that our water resources engineers are pursuing currently. They're looking for good sites for aquifer storage. It sounds like it might be located close to our operations in Denver, um, but it certainly is an option for us in the future.
1: That's a really good question, and not entirely sure of the answer. So yet, but I apologize for that. One one comment that I should make about that diagram, which is from Noah.
2: So the question was asking about just some of the dollar amounts. And um, one piece of information I can share that I know, just from the, the listening to the Undersecretary, Jim Hubbard, was that the U.S. Forest Service in 2018 alone, just one year, spent, I think, $2.6 billion in suppression. So it's a huge cost. But we just recently had a huge uh, success in, in, um, in, in budgeting for these uh, the forest treatments um, on the U.S. Forest Service side. So the problem that we had w- in getting budget for a lot of these projects was there was a problem called fire borrowing in the U.S. Forest Service. So what would happen is when there was a big fire, the U.S. Forest Service would have to basically rob or borrow um, from other pots of money and it would take from all the program areas, from areas that repair trails or deal with recreation. And so it would rob from these program areas, including the forest treatment side, um, because they needed they needed that immediate cash to respond to these fires. So there is a recent um, legislative fix called the Omnibus Bill. And this bill, uh, it, starting in 2020, creates... Its own budget for the suppression and the response efforts, so that's going to eliminate the problem of of this fire borrowing. So we're really hopeful that creating its own budget for the suppression efforts will help support some of the efforts, the the other programs that are funded within the U.S. Forest Service. Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It it you're absolutely right. So the the comment was thinking about quantifying this return on investment piece, quantifying these costs, and being able to share that story. And I totally agree that really it comes down to um, you know it's great. It makes me feel good to say oh I'm making a difference and doing good by the environment. But really it's those dollar figures that that matter to um, the folks in in DC, and that's what the stories that we have to be sharing. I, I completely agree. Yeah? Uh, when collaborating with different departments, how do you see, you see the most benefit? Do you be like, creating
0: more fuel, right? Or being like the recovery? Series? Yeah. So where would you see more money
2: out of it, how would be? Yeah, it's gotta be a combination of both. I think you need a combination of stream restorations, of rehabilitation in the fire affected areas, sure. Um, certainly, supporting like the co- like local watershed groups, like the Coalition for Upper South Platte, um, that's that's very very important. But then also on the proactive side. Um, that being said, Denver Water, we have to start thinking about maintenance, maintaining our investments. Um, so the funding structure will change eventually to more of the maintenance, maintaining what we've invested, and um, we could see a change in how we're we're planning. Um, and, and thinking about budgets for maintenance and um, also knowing that we're getting into steeper ground, more challenging acres, um, so maybe we need to be more strategic about putting a fuel break in where it's really tough to get equipment in instead of thinking about a huge treatment. Um, so it, it really is a combination, and it's very specific to the, the watersheds that you're planning for. There's not really a one-size-fits-all, um, and that's really what Allison is working on, is thinking about where we can strategically place um, specific action items to, to tailor the best, best management practice for what is needed um, on the land. Okay. So the first question is um, the relationship with the insurance companies and uh, how we can um, be targeting them and building relationships with them because they're benefiting from a lot of this work. Uh, that's, you know, the realtors and the insurance companies are people that we've tried to, to engage. On Summit County, um, there's a realtor that shows up to the Summit County Wildfire Council meetings. So that's encouraging. Um, the insurance companies, what the response has always been is that the wildfire um, costs are still really minimal to them, and so it's not a priority. Now, after the whole California fires, um, we've heard, at least at this conference last week, that there has been more interest um, from the insurance companies in, in taking this stuff seriously, um, so, what we're seeing, at least in the area I live, where I mean there's been fires and it's definitely a fire adapted ecosystem, um, there's some companies that just don't don't insure the homeowners, but then you have like companies like Lloyd's of London that'll insure anyone. Um, so it, it is something that that we have been trying to engage the insurance companies in. We haven't had a lot of success in that. But I think we have to still be encouraging a number of different partners, not just insurance companies, but like the beverage industry. They benefit from clean water. Um, it's really cool. In uh, in Fort Collins, uh, there's I think 20 um, microbreweries that have banded together and uh, formed a group called Brew Shed. I think I think that's what it's called. Um, and they are giving some of their proceeds to uh, some of the, the forest treatments because they know the importance of their drinking water source in Fort Collins. Um, so they're funding uh, the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed and um, helping to do some of this work. So we do have to, again, to achieve that all hands, all lands. It doesn't mean just the landowners. It also means all these different partners that rely on this, this, this resource, clean water, um, but also community protection and safety. Um, so yeah, the list goes on for how to engage the realtors, insurance, beverage industry. Um, we just need to continue pushing for um, the importance of these treatments to those relative partners. And then the second, uh, the reason was Water was Waterton Canyon closed for the dredging. Um, it probably was. I, I don't. I, I'm sure it was. Does anyone know? Pat? Yeah? Allison? It was. Yes, Waterton Canyon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, what Allison said is yes, the dredging did close Waterton Canyon and in thinking about future management decisions in Strontia, the recreation impacts in Waterton Canyon are being um, considered as a factor Um, that is part of the decision making for the management tools. Um, so, the question was, how do we reach out to the private landowners, and then what is the financial commitment or the match? Um, again, Max. Max is Max and the State Forest Service, local watershed groups, um, they, they're really the boots on the ground. And so, that's, I feel like that's where Denver Water has really gotten a lot of value out of the partnerships um, with the U.S. Forest Service and the state. In, uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service is that they're the folks that are on the ground that, that are dealing um, with the private landowners and trying to showcase the importance of this work and I, I know that's got to be tough the social challenges are, are hard um, there's some areas that are a lot more tough to, to operate in like Um, In Boulder County, we've had a few issues with, you know, there's a community that just is really socially resistant to a lot of these, just managing the forest in general. And so how we have um, tried to embrace um, these... The society's concerns or this neighborhood's concerns is we brought on Colorado Forest Restoration Institute to adapt a a citizen monitoring program so they can be a part of understanding the science and a part of these decisions for how the land is going to be managed. Um, the cost share, uh, that, it does depend on the program. So with Natural Resources Conservation Service, that's through a program called the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. The, the acronym is EQIP. in case you ever hear that. Um, I believe the, the landowner match for that is 25%, um, uh, rough estimate. And then the State Forest Service, they use a bunch of different grant programs and financial tools um, where that really depends on the acres, the location, and the year um, on what types of financial um, requirements. Uh, They work one-on-one with the landowners for that. So with water quality impacts, uh, yes, we had uh, impacts with the sediment, but then we also had water quality impacts um, such as we, uh, the uh, manganese. Manganese was a huge impact um, after the fires. Total organic carbon, an increase in that. Um, Allison, what else? This is my water quality expert. The turbidity It's great. Yep, and then there are the dissolved metals, carbon, and the impacts, but honestly, with turbidity, we use kind of a vary. So just to repeat, um, turbidity is our canary for water quality impacts, and um, and also Frank has some really knowledgeable things on wildfire water quality impacts that he just stated about total organic carbon. Frank, you had a question? Yeah. Yeah. We haven't measured that. Uh, That's hard to measure. But um, certainly there's been ongoing conversations between uh, New York um, and Portland where they invest in conservation easements to preserve forests that are in really good shape. And um what they're with New York, they have a whole filtration waiver um the cost avoidance I'm sure you know about this more than I do um where because of the health of their forest, they're investing in these conservation easements and programs to um, conserve the the forest that gives them really a good source of water that they can avoid certain treatment costs in the end um so that's easy for them to quantify. we filter um so it's it's been tough to quantify the the benefits of um, preserving really healthy forests. There's been some work done, again, through the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute looking at, um, with climate change and, and a possible vegetation change, how that impacts runoff and, and how pines, you know, they hold on to snow on their branches. and. If it changed to like a shrub type of vegetation class, would that impact the runoff that we see in the seasonal trends? Um, So there's a lot that goes into understanding the dynamics between the, the land use and the land type. And certainly we're accounting for land use and vegetation type in the watershed plan that Allison's working on. Um, It's an important factor. We don't have those answers yet for Denver Water. um, And we we certainly welcome any thoughts from the Water Research Foundation on such investments and quantification. So on the carbon dioxide, I don't have a, I don't have a number, but um, the Coalition for Upper South Platte is actually working on a carbon trading initiative where they're trying to quantify the benefits of um, investing and in, in reducing the intensity of these forest fires, which produce a lot of the carbon impacts. And so we do have companies that are coming into Colorado who want to do um, some uh, carbon offset by investing in in planting trees in the burned areas. Um, So there are some opportunities, it sounds like, for private landowners uh, to to get some payment for planting trees for more of uh, restoring the landscapes that have burned and and to get to the the carbon um, offsets uh, that I think California is trying to target. So that's been kind of a new um, initiative that's formed, I would say, in the last year. Um, is planting more trees, getting funding for that because of um, air quality concerns. But then also there's the other side where it's showcasing the air quality benefits by preventing another large-scale fire like the Haman 2.
0: Sadly, we have to close because these guys need to get home. If you don't mind, anything you can bust to the bins would be awesome. And we are so grateful for your participation and your support for Golden Beer Talks. Have a great night. I hope we see you next month, second Tuesday.